Well, amen. It is great to have you with us today as we're joining together as a church family, some here, some there, some everywhere, uh, some sitting in pews, some sitting in couches uh, watching. It's just awesome to be connected through worship and through the Word together. And today I'm really excited about this passage because it's a really challenging one. And yet we're also going to do a little current events related to it, related to Ukraine and some prophecies that God talked about 500 B.C. So some really interesting things to discover today as we study the Bible together. If you remember, as we've been traveling through Numbers, we found ourselves moving from the wilderness of preparation to now the wilderness of testing. And the theme has been, God says, one more lap around the wilderness. That God will put you in the same circumstances over and over again to see if you'll trust him this time, if you'll choose an attitude of gratitude over that rumble of the grumble. And we've seen for the last couple weeks, it's been like one more lap, guys. (laughs) Rebellion, consequence, discipline. (laughs) One more lap, guys. Rebellion, grumble, complain, and consequence. The question today is, will the people learn from this severe consequence on a mutiny that occurs in the wilderness of testing in Paran? Now, the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. And some of these significant passages we're looking at, coming up in a few weeks with Balaam, and today, the rebellion of Korah, gets referenced in the book of Jude. So Jude tells us what we're supposed to learn about these passages. And it's a warning. Jude says, but these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts. In these things, they have corrupted themselves. Woe to them! Well, how did they turn themselves into brute beasts? Well, he says, they went the way of Cain. They gave into their inner feast, their inner appetite for revenge and jealousy. When you give in to jealousy and you give in to envy long enough, that inner feast will transform you or corrupt you into a brute beast. Also, some have run greedily into the air of Balaam for profit. If you don't just like money and enjoy money, but you live for money, it will eventually, that inner feast for ambition and money, not subordinated to God, can corrupt you into a brute beast. And then he mentions the, some perished in the rebellion of Korah, and that's what we're looking at today. The rebellious, unteachable attitude, I know better than my boss, I know better than the world, I know better than God. And even as Christians who become children of God, we can begin to corrupt ourselves. There's a passage in the Chronicles of Narnia where Eustace a child of Aslan, Aslan the lion, who's died for them and made them children of the king. And yet Eustace has started to give in to snaky thoughts and snaky appetites and snaky rebellion. So much so that he's turned himself into a serpent. He tries to get the scales off. He tries to transform himself back, but he can't. And then one day Aslan shows up and Aslan says to him, you need to let me undress that serpent's skin from you. I was afraid of his claws. But I was so desperate 
to be free, I laid on my back. The first tear was terribly deep. I thought it would go into my heart. It hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. The only thing that kept me going was just the, the desire to be free. He peeled it off and he threw it to my side and I saw the beastly skin. It was thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than I had remembered. I was suddenly smooth and soft and Aslan caught me tenderly because my skin had been removed. He went and dipped me into the water when I saw my reflection. I had become a boy again. A beautiful picture of what Jesus wants to do for you and I. Even as Christians, the inner child of God is in us, and even when we corrupt ourselves into brute beasts, God wants to meet us, rip through that old serpent skin of ours, that we can refine who we are in Christ, be washed again, grow again in love with the King who died for us. But to do that, we need to beware, Jude says. Beware that what happened to them can happen to us. And then we need to, need to be aware of some of the patterns we have in our life that if we don't address them and confess them and own them, we're marching toward destruction. Let's start with this idea then. What does God want from us? God can either reform your inner feast, and he wants to do that before it transforms you into that brute beast. So will you choose God's reforming? Or will you allow your appetites to transform you into something you don't want to be? Beware. Beware the inner feast of Korah. Now, if you don't remember Korah, when we were first studying the first couple chapters of, of Numbers, we learned that Korah were the people, the family of the Levites that were in charge of setting up the tabernacle and being in charge of the ark. So these are very, very religious, spiritual people. These would be like the, 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 the famous Christians of the day. And we're going to find these famous Christians who do very important spiritual things give in to their own hypocrisy, their unteachable attitude, their own self-righteousness, and they corrupt themselves to rebellion. And I'm telling you this, have you ever been turned off by Christians? I don't know if you've ever met one of these, but self-righteous Christians, you ever met one of these things? People who think they're better than other people, people who look down on other people. Anybody know any? I've been one, right? I am one, right? We all struggle with this idea. And if it could happen to them, it could happen to us. So here's what happens. Moses gets approached by Korah. Korah took men and rose up against Moses, and he brought 250 leaders with him. They gathered against Moses and Aaron, and he says, you take too much upon yourself, Moses, for all the congregation is holy. Why do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? Moses heard it, and almost his instinct is always to repent. He falls on his face before God, and then he spoke to Korah, saying, tomorrow morning, the Lord will show you who he is, as if he doesn't know who's holy, and he's going to cause those who are holy to come near to him. So do this. I want you to take your little metal sensors, put your little fiery um, coal in there, you and all your company, and it will be that the man whom the Lord chooses is the holy one. 
You, he, he flips the words back on him. What's really happening here is you are taking too much on yourself. Your ambition and your envy and your jealousy is what's driving this. I'm not falling for it. So it's interesting, this phrase, you take too much on yourself, he accuses Moses of, is the very thing that he turns back on him, you sons of Levi. A couple of insights here. We often disguise our envy and our lust with the language of leadership. There's a leadership question here. It might be just you're envious and jealous. We often disguise our inability to be people under authority, to submit to a mission, agree, maybe... uh, Agree to disagree, but say, I'm going to do what I've called to do under my organization, under my boss, under the authorities around me. Because we're not people of authority, we disguise our lack of teachability, our need to be right, our need to be in charge with the language of spiritual language. Oh, no, we're all, we're all the assembly of God. We're all holy, Korah says. We often accuse people of the very thing we practice. You take too much on yourself, Moses. Oh, no, no, no. What's really going on is you are taking too much, thinking you need and deserve more than what God's entrusted to you. Hmm. See, if we're not careful, whatever your inner appetite is, the inner appetite for gossip or status or approval, good appetites, but if they're not subordinated to God, those inner feasts, they'll consume you. You remember the, uh, the play or the movie, if you saw the movie too, The Little Shop of Horrors with that big man-eating plant? Feed me, Seymour, feed me. I'll just give him one little drop of blood. <laughs> Maybe he'll be satisfied. Feed me, Seymour, feed me. Maybe a couple drops. Maybe my right finger. Maybe my right arm. Maybe two arms. And by the end of the movie, what happens? Feed me, Seymour, feed me. He eats the guy up. If we don't let God reform our our lack of teachability, our lack of humility, it will destroy us like it did those from the rebellion of Korah. So Moses responds. Moses said to Korah, you sons of Levi, guys, is it a small thing what God's entrusted you with? The God of Israel has separated you from all the other congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the work of the tabernacle. That's what you're in charge of, to stand before the congregation, to serve them. This is a big deal what you're doing. And he has brought you near to himself. Are you and all your brethren, the sons of Levi, with you? And yet you're not satisfied with what God's given you, and you're seeking the priesthood also? Therefore you and all the company that are gathered with you This isn't a holy leadership discussion. You are rebelling against the Lord. And what's Aaron done that you're complaining against him? So in this case, it's jealousy, it's ambition, it's I know better than God, what I should do and how big my territory should be and what I should be in charge of. And I don't want to live under the authority of Moses. Same thing we saw with Miriam and Aaron a few chapters ago. I don't quote Billy Graham very often, but he's certainly very quotable. I love this quote. He says, we are never more like the devil than when we want to touch the glory. Satan was unsatisfied with his position as the head of all the angels. 
God's holding out, God's not running the universe right, I deserve, I deserve, I deserve, and he threw a mutiny rebellion against the heavens. What is it in your life, maybe it's something God did you don't like, didn't let you be the priest, letting go through a medical condition, your kids aren't behaving the way you thought they would or you dreamed they should. What is that thing that if you don't respond with the attitude of gratitude and trusting God, you might let the grief of that, the anger of that, the jealousy of that, the bitterness of that turn you into a, a brute beast. And God is calling out to you, let me reform you. Let me reform that appetite in you. I was reading a story a couple months ago of the COO of Facebook, Sheryl Sandberg, and she described as the tragedy of losing her husband. He was in perfect shape, running on his treadmill, and she came home and she would discover that he had just died. She said the void, just the void was insatiable. She said in that moment I could just give in to the void of meaninglessness and anger and bitterness and being a, a widow, trying to figure out how to be a mom with kids. My whole life had been planned out as a planner and then this wasn't part of the equation. She had a rabbi who gave her a phrase that she kept meditating on as she was working through the grief. I don't want to start dying while I'm still living. And letting, instead of letting the grief consume me, she said, I decide to try and find meaning in the midst of it and become something more than I was. I didn't like what this grief was turning me into, so I chose gratitude. I chose reaching out to other people. I became more vulnerable than I'd ever been with my team, and it brought us together more. I find myself trying to thank, maybe not God yet, but the universe for every day of my life. She said I'd have friends who would celebrate birthdays. Hey, are you celebrating your birthday this weekend? Oh, no, every birthday's the same. I'm not going to celebrate my birthday. And she would say, celebrate your birthday. You never know how many you're going to get. Don't take them for granted. And she let this tragedy begin to transform her in a more interdependent person, a more vulnerable person, and a more grateful person. How about your appetites from what's happened to you or not happened to you? Are you letting it transform you into a brute beast? Or are you giving it to God so he can reform you into the best version of yourself? Beware. The rebellion of Korah. In order to be aware of it, we need to be aware of where we are in our own journey. If your appetite for gossip or for ambition or for whatever your particular appetite is goes unchecked, God will eventually consume that inner feast. And he's going to warn them and warn them and warn them. But if they don't stop, if they don't repent, they're going to go crashing down into a crater. See, God loves us enough that he'll either reform our inner feast or he'll consume the things that turn us into a brute beast. And that's what he's going to do with those in Korah. Here's so how the story continues. Moses called to Datham and Abram, the sons of Eliab, and said, hey, come on over here. 
And they say, we will not come up. They use Moses' words against him. Is it a small thing that you brought us out of the land flowing with milk and honey? To kill us in the wilderness? You keep acting like a prince over us. Moreover, you have not brought us into flowing with milk and honey kind of land, nor given us the inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. I mean, this is a level of rebellion and mutiny and my way or the highway, and I know better than you. You're like, whoo. They're taking a step toward the crater. You notice I color-coded it. It's basically a, a giant Hebrew chiasm with the different ideas rhyming with each other. We will not go up is the beginning. We will not go up is the end. And the ideas in the middle rhyme. In Hebrew, rhyming of ideas. So Moses... <laughs> It's very angry. He says to God, do not respect that offering. That's not a real offering they're giving. I've not taken one donkey they've accused me of. I've not hurt anyone. So Moses turns to Korah, chance to repent here. Tomorrow, we are talking about tomorrow, it's coming. You and all your company are going to be presenting yourself before the Lord. You and they as well as Aaron. And every man, I want you to take your censer, metal censer, put your little fire in there, lay incense on it. Stand at the door of the tabernacle. That's what's going to happen tomorrow. The meeting with, with Aaron and, and, and I. And you think at that point, it's like, I'm going to stand before God. Man, I had to really think about, you know, am I really right with the Lord? Am I really doing the right thing? Oh, no. He just marches on. Of course he's right. Kor not only thinks he's right, he gathers now the whole congregation, all two million people to rebel against. Everybody with me over here. He gets the whole congregation against them. The rebellion's getting bigger and worse. And they meet at the door of the tabernacle meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. At that point, don't you go, I'm so sorry. Forgive me. So, so sorry. Sorry for not being teachable. Sorry for not being humble. Sorry for being so arrogant. No, no. Just one more step. The glory of the Lord appeared to the congregation, and the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron Separate yourself from them that I may consume them in a moment. I mean, when you see Moses and Aaron kind of wiggling their way off and you hear God say, I'm going to consume them in a moment, isn't now the time to repent? Isn't now the time to say, boy, I think I've hit rock bottom. I think this is the time to turn around. But if you have ever wrestled with your heart, our heart... Rock bottom is so much deeper than you think. And our need to be right and our need to prove ourselves and our, our need to show other people that we're in charge of our own lives, including God. Whew. So now Moses and Aaron have scurried off. And what are they doing? They are petitioning for the people who are trying to kill them. We just see a picture of Jesus here. They again fall on their face in humility and they said, oh God, God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man core us in and everybody get sucked into it and they all get the consequences? Let's not do that. God said, all right, speak to the congregation and say, get away from the tents of Korah, Datham, and Ephraim. So Moses rose and said, hey guys, everybody, back up. Everybody, out of the pool, out, out, move over here. Get away from them. Now at that point, you're Korah and Datham and Abraham. Aren't you thinking to yourself, uh, 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 isn't it now the time to repent? No. Moses said, depart now from the tents of these wicked men. 
Touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in your sins. So everybody gets away from them. And Dotham and Ibram came out to the door of their tents with their wives and their sons, their little children. They think they're as right as ever. And they got one more chance. Moses, all right, guys, by this you're going to know that the Lord has sent me to do these works, and I haven't been doing them of my own will. If these men die naturally, like most people die, visited by the common fate of all men, then the Lord hasn't sent me. But if the Lord creates a new thing today, a new thing, that sounds nice, that the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up whole and all that belongs to them and they go down alive into the pit, then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. At this point, don't you think you should repent? At this point, don't you say, whoa, 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 that alive in the pit sounds bad. Nope. They've corrupted themselves into brute peace. And as he finished speaking, the ground split open, and the earth opened and swallowed them up with all of their goods. Remember, this whole thing was about them wanting more, wanting more, wanting more goods. They've lost that and everything else, including things they care about, like their family. So they and all who were with them went down alive into the pit, and the earth closed around them. And all Israel who were with them fled at their cry and said, lest the earth swallow us up as well. And a fire came from the Lord and consumed the 250 men. So one group falls into the earthquake, the other are consumed by fire who are offering incense. It's a stark warning that we need to be aware of our own inner feasts and say, God, reform me so I don't lose my ability to see the truth or hear the truth or respond to me. God, reform me because either God's going to reform your inner feast or he's going to consume you like a brute beast. And this is something he does all through history. He does it to you, me. He's done it to leaders like Nebuchadnezzar, who ends up turning into a cow for several years. You haven't read that story before in Daniel. He turns into a, you know, acting like a cow, loses his mind. In fact, all through the Bible, God will use earthquakes and fire to humble people. One of the most powerful examples of that, right now we're in the book of Numbers here, having just come out of Egypt. But years later, after King Saul and King David and King Solomon, when the kingdoms divide into the north and the south, there's a nation called Babylon that takes over. But before they take over, God tries to warn his people, and they don't listen. And then he gives them a prophecy about the future, about he's still in control of all things. So I'm going to take a few moments and talk about a prophecy called the prophecy of Gog and Magog. Because here in this prophecy, we see God using an earthquake and fire to humble a future leader who's doing the same kind of rebellious activity, never have enough, that the Korah family did. Let me give you a little background here as we dive into it. The Lord God says to Ezekiel, so for 32 chapters he's been warning the people. And now he brings up this weird character, Gog. He says, hey, there's this guy named Gog, and I'm going to turn him around, and I'm going to bring him to the, to the far north. He's, this leader is from the far north, north of Israel. And I'm going to bring him against the mountains of Israel, I'm going to knock the bow out of his hand and the arrows out of his other hand. And he's going to fall, this leader, onto the mountains of Israel, you and the troops and all the people who are with you. And I'm going to send fire on Magog and all those who live in the coastland who have joined with him. And they shall know that I am the Lord by this display of my power. Now, it's coming in the future. It's not right now. 
But just know that's what I'm going to do when the time has run out. So who is this? Well, Gog is a name almost like saying pharaoh or leader or president. So he's the leader of some place. So Gog, the leader of a place called Magog. Well, where's Magog? Well, a little background. Noah's descendants, Noah had Jabeth, and one of Japheth's sons had Magog. So the Magogonites. And we know from history that Josephus is a Jewish historian. He tells that the Greeks referred to the Magogonites as the Scythians. So every time you've ever read about the Scythians in history, we're talking about the Magogonites. All right? So where's the Magogonites? Well, just north, remember the far north of Israel, it's modern-day Ukraine and Russia. So God says way in the future there's going to be a time that there's going to be a leader of Russia, Ukraine area that's going to want more than though it's his, and he's going to come down eventually and attack Israel, and I'm going to defend my people. Let's go back to the prophecy. Another thing to note is at the same time almost Ezekiel's writing, Herodotus is also writing, 480 B.C., and he says the Scythian kings, known as the royal Scythians, they lived around the Black Sea. So again, so we got all these kind of coordination of biblical prophecy and history coming together. This is the, the section of the world we're talking about. All right, well, what's going to happen? Well, God says, I'm coming against Gog, this nation to the far north. I'm going to bring him down to the mountains of Israel to humble him with fire and an earthquake. I'm going to send fire on Magog, and this is the day when that day comes. It's going to come. It's not yet. It's going to come in the future, but it's going to come, and I'm going to humble him. Now, it's interesting, the mountains of Israel, when I visited Israel, one of the sections in north Israel is called the Golan Heights. And Israel had to take that back over because Syria was coming and kind of shooting down at them so they would take over to defend themselves. And even last month, Russia declared that they no longer recognize Israel's uh, control over Jerusalem or their control over the Golan Heights, the northern mountains of Israel. Now, Jesus may not come back for a thousand years. This is not a prediction. This is just saying the things God's been predicting for 2,500 years are being put in place, almost like chess pieces. So when you read the news, you get anxious or nervous, like everyone has through history. Remember, God is in charge, and God has a plan. And you can look at the things he's fulfilled in the past to give you confidence of the things he's going to do in the future. And so he goes on with this prophecy. He says, Ezekiel's really interesting because a little summary of Ezekiel, he prophesies lots of things that come to bear. So starting in the first 32 chapters, he's been saying, <laughs> you're marching toward the pit. You're going to lose. Babylon's going to kill you. Babylon's going to get you. Babylon's going to get you. They don't listen. He said, I want to set you, son of man, like a watchman on the wall for the house of Israel. Warn them, warn them, warn them in chapter 3. Give them warning for me. Well, they don't take the warning. So by chapter 33, those warnings come true. Somebody runs up and says, hey, on the 12th year of the captivity, in the 10th month, on the 5th day of the month, the city has been captured just like he predicted. So now the people are like, Babylon has taken over. God predicted it, it happened. Now what? God says, well, I still have promises in the future. I still have a plan for you, and I'm still in control. You must think, we're never going to get our land back. We're never going to get our temple back. We've been crushed. Here's some predictions God makes. Really fascinating. He says, well, number one, you got some bad leaders who have not led you real well. So there's going to become a time in the future that I myself am going to come to earth. I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, I will seek my sheep. And sure enough, 
500 years later, Jesus shows up, and what does he say? I'm the good shepherd who's come to seek out my flock. When the people were conquered by the Romans, they thought, there's no way God's going to fill his promises. He did. Another piece of the puzzle. God said, there's going to be a time in the future. You remember, Jesus predicted the temple would be destroyed at 70 AD, and it was. And all of the Israelites were scattered across the world. The Romans were so sick of dealing with the nation of Israel, they said, let's rename this land. Who lived here before? The Philistines. And they used, I think it's a Latin word for Philistines, which is Palatine, which is like saying the Philistines live here. No more land, no more territory, 70 AD. And the Israelites, just like in, in Ezekiel's day, are like, do we ever going to get a plan? Is God ever going to fill his promises? God says, yes, I'm going to take you in the future from among the nations you've been scattered out to, and I'm going to gather you back to your own country, and I'm going to bring you into your own land. I mean, this was a laughable prophecy. People used to make fun of the Bible and say, well, maybe this was just spiritual promise, not literal. Because if you've ever looked at a map, between 70 A.D., in 1948, Israel didn't have a land. They had been literally scattered to the nations. So people are like, let's not take the Bible too seriously. It's not like, it's not like Israel's going to eventually have a land. And yet, in times of uncertainty, hundreds of years of knowing what in the world's going on in the world, 1948, sure enough, just like God predicted in Ezekiel, he brought Israel back to the land. And he began to bring them back from all the different areas they've been scattered in the world, just like he said he did, another piece of the puzzle. Another piece of the puzzle that's happened over the last 50 years is uh, in Ezekiel 38. The Lord of God came to me and said, Son of man, set your face against Gog, the president of Magog, Russia, and I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, he's talking to the Russian um, leader, and I'm going to lead you and all your army. And he's made an allegiance with Persia, with Ethiopia, and Libya. So this is fascinating because for most of human history, the Babylonians and the Persians were arch enemies. I mean, the idea that the Persians and the Magogonites would ever be friends and do a joint venture was unthinkable. Another reason people didn't believe the Bible. And yet if you look at recent history, for the first time, modern Iran, Persia, and Russia, the Magogonites, are friends now just like the Bible foretold from 500 B.C. Here it is on a map. This is where ancient Libya was. Ethiopia was a huge area, basically all of North and uh, East Africa was considered Ethiopia in Ezekiel's day. And then Persia is where modern-day Iran is. So, again, God is saying, when life feels out of control, I am still in control. And I want you to know that I am going to bring judgment against arrogance in whatever form, whether it's coming from Korah or it's coming from Gog. And I'm going to bring judgment, and he brings judgment against them. So apparently this leader of the Magogonites heads south, tries to take over the land in these latter days. He's like, now latter, latter days, something else is going to happen. After Israel's regathered, it's going to be that they're going to say, I want to take the land away. And Gog is going to come down He's going to try and take land from Israel in the northern mountains. And I'm going to send a giant earthquake into the land of Israel to stop him. And all of his other armies from Persia and these other nations. And I'm going to magnify myself. I'm going to sanctify myself. And I'm going to use that circumstance to show that I am the Lord to the nations. That's what it's about. I want them to know that I am the Lord. That's his goal. It's always been his goal. God is always trying to bring glory to himself. 
And just like he did with Korah, with Gog and Magog, he's going to use an earthquake and consume by fire someone who's turned himself into a brute beast. Now, over the history lessons, some people have thought that was Stalin. Some people think it's Putin. It might be a thousand years from now. I'm not here to predict who's who, except to say what God said is true, and you can count on him to be in control when the world feels upside down. He will hold brute beasts accountable, and he's in control when things seem upside down. Let's jump back to our passage. So what happens after this earthquake and after this fire? Well, Moses says, guys, all the 250 rebels got burned up, but I want you to tell Eleazar, the son of Aaron, to pick up all those, remember those metal sensors I told you they had with the fire and incense in them? Pick up all the metal sensors that didn't get burned up. They are still holy, <laughs> unlike the people holding them. The sensors of the men, who are these men? Those who sinned against their own souls. Almost the same idea that Jude says, corrupted themselves. And let their sensors, these metal sensors for holding incense, be hammered into plates to cover the altar. I love this idea. This was to be a sign for future generations of better beware and be aware of your own appetites. So they took those sensors and they hammered them into a plate and they put the plate on the altar. So every time you came to altar with your kids, hey, what's with the new plate, Dad? Well, you remember those guys who fell in an earthquake? Yeah, we don't want to be like them. Let's look at our own hearts. And where does he put those metal plates? He doesn't put them like out in the middle of nowhere. He puts them on the altar, a place of forgiveness, a place of redemption. Saying, listen, let's deal with our own inner brokenness at the altar before we face the consequences. God has made a way with broken people who do broken, rebellious things to come near him. So this hammered metal plate became a reminder of forgiveness. I think that's the reminder for you and I of this story. We are Korah. Don't think about, oh, I got somebody who needs to listen to this message. No, you need to listen to this message. I need to listen to this message. Because either you and I are going to be hammered ourselves into a brute beast, one decision at a time, one lust at a time, one appetite at a time. We're going to hammer ourselves into a brute beast. Or you can live knowing that he was hammered because we're brute beasts. Why was, were nails hammered into his arms and hammered into his feet except that we are brute beasts who give in to all of our own lusts because of that he died on the ultimate altar, which is Calvary, for you and for me. And what God wants more than anything for you is not us to be self-righteous religious people who pretend we're better than we are, but people who are honest about our own brokenness, fall on our own faces before God and say, God, forgive me for how I have allowed my appetites to corrupt me. Aslan, take your claws and rip deep into my heart if you have to, but I've got to get rid of of this snakeskin. And that's what I want for you. I want you to rediscover who you are in Christ, that child of God, maybe buried deep underneath some snaky thoughts and snaky habits. And you would find on the altar that you're not gonna keep hammering yourself into a brute beast. You're going to live so thankful to the one that was hammered for you. Let's pray together. Maybe you want to respond to God in that way and just say, God, forgive me for my secret struggles.
reform my inner appetites. Rip through the snake skin I've placed on myself. Forgive me and help me refine who I am in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, since we're talking about Ukraine, we as a church want to help. We've been praying a lot. I know many of you have been praying for Ukraine and things going on. But we have partnered with Matthew 25 Ministries to help them out in a real tangible way. So if you're interested in being part of helping, you can grab one of these yellow bags on the way out, you and your family. You're going to find inside that bag is a list of different supplies that are needed. And Matthew 25 Ministries is connecting directly with them. However, you don't have to use us as a middle person either. If you want to go directly to their website, um, one of their board members actually attends here and loves Horizon, and we have a partnership with them and with him. Um, you can go to m25m.org, matthew25ministries.org, see exactly what they need, exactly what uh, resources you can be involved in, or you can go to our website, horizoncc.com backslash Ukraine, to see ways you can get involved. You might say, listen, I don't want to just pack a bag. One of the biggest needs right now is the money needed to ship all those supplies over there. So maybe you want to actually put some supplies together. Maybe God's going to prompt you to help pay for some shipments that need to go over in that area. But we want to be praying for peace in the world, shalom, to the chaos going on around us. But we also want to tangibly help those who are hurting, help those who are in need. And that's what we're doing as a church. And so maybe use these resources. We come together as a church, m25m.org or horizoncc.com, Ukraine. And just how can we come together as a church for all of those who are hurting during this time and a time that really feels like things are out of control? That God would be known, that God would be exalted, that God would sanctify himself through our gifts. And as you think about the next couple of weeks, maybe part of you making God known is inviting a friend. We've got Easter services coming up. You want to grab some tickets for that? We've got a great opportunity called Egg Extravaganza with kids. It's a great chance to invite friends and family who maybe wouldn't come to church but will come to an egg hunt. Great opportunity to maybe invite people to come and start exploring in their own life. And just like we did last year, we're going to have an online-only Good Friday service that you can access through the web or the, or the app that Friday morning to walk you through reflecting on the death of Christ. Either way, as a community, let's pray for Ukraine as we head out. Father, we ask for peace, shalom. We ask you to confuse the path of the wicked, to vindicate the righteous. We ask, Father, that you would bring clarity where there's only confusion. And God, that you would protect the innocent in the world and prompt us on how we can be part of what you're doing in people's lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll see you all next week.